We just started a brand new series uh, last week um, uh, called I Want to Live, and uh, we're going to faithfully, and probably slowly, but faithfully walk through uh, what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. And where we started last week, uh, does this sound really nasally and funny to you guys as well? Yes, good. As long as we're all on the same page, then it's not a problem. Um, we started last week, uh, and we looked at just a few, actually two to be exact, of what's known as the B attitudes. Uh, and I was hoping to actually get through all eight, and we got through two. Um, I'm hoping we can cover six, but uh, if we knock out two, then we'll do four next week. Um, but it's a question that I posed to us last week is, this is a huge chunk of scripture uh, devoted to Jesus' teaching on all things related to life and how we live and how we interact, everything from just who we are, relationships and, and marriage. And uh, it's such a practical uh, teaching that Jesus lays out here for us of how to live. But he starts with attitude. And so I asked a question last week, why does Jesus jump right in with the very first thing of attitude? And one of the things that I had shared with you last week, and I'll repeat myself, uh, was this. Attitude determines actions, actions reveal the heart, and the heart displays the man. Let me read that again. Attitude determines actions, uh, actions reveal the heart, and the heart displays the man. So a question that we all need to wrestle with is, who are we? And if you need to take a look at that, just go, go backwards. Look at the actions uh, that you have, your responses, things like that. Uh, and it starts with attitude. And so many of us, if we want to see a difference, a transformation, a change in our life, Jesus starts us at this point for that very reason with attitude. Attitude is everything. Determines actions, reveals the heart, and the heart displays the man. Uh, Let me read. Uh, I read it last week, and let me read it again. This is Matthew. If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and flip open to Matthew chapter 5. Start at uh, verse 3, and you'll hear that there's eight specific attitudes that Jesus is addressing, and he starts each uh, attitude with a a promise. And the first promise, uh, all of them start the same way, by blessed are you, and blessed are you, and blessed are you. So the question we asked last week also was, what does it mean to be blessed? If you were to describe, define what a blessed life looks like, it might be very different, probably is very different than a blessed life that Jesus is talking about. So blessing, uh, some can translate it as happy are you, congratulations to you, fortunate are you. Uh, Or another way to think about it, which I think is probably the most helpful, is approved are you. God approves of this. So blessed are you or approved of you of God uh, for these different attitudes. So the first one is this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The question was, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? This is the spiritually bankrupt person, the person who has come to the end of themselves. This was a hard question um, last week. Have you actually gotten to the end of you yet? Because if you haven't, you can't get to the beginning of God, as it were. Have you gotten to the end of yourself? And how you know if you've gotten to the end of yourself yet is you ask yourself the question, is there anything I can actually do in my life that merits favor or that is there something I could do where God would love me more if I did this, or I could earn his grace, earn his mercy? 
If you answer yes to any of those questions, you have not gotten to the end of yourself because you're still impressed with yourself thinking that somehow, some way, God will look at you and be like, wow, why can't everyone just be like that person? So a person who is poor in spirit is spiritually bankrupt. They realize that they bring nothing to the table, nothing to the equation. God is God. They are sinful. God is gracious, and we can receive his grace. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So the last thing we looked at was, what does it mean to mourn, and what are we actually mourning over? Someone who realizes that they're poor in spirit also realizes that they sin. They are a sinner who sins, and they mourn over the fact that they sin against God sin against others, and they are mournful about their sin. So the question I think I asked last week is, do you do that? Do you mourn over your rebellion against God, your sin? We cry over lots of different things, but is there a deep sense of grief over our wronging against God, our rebellion against God? Many people won't experience the comfort of God because They don't sense that they have anything actually to be sorry for. Well, I'm not that big of a sinner. The guy next to me, the woman next to me, God's dealing with them, but my stuff's not that bad. You will never experience the comfort of God until you come to a place and say, wow, I've got a lot to confess before God. And when you do and mourn over sin, you are greeted with the comfort of God, the forgiveness of God. Then we get into the next six. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger, thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he finishes it with a benediction. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets uh, who were before you. So we're going to look at, uh, hopefully, uh, the back six, starting with the very first one, which is, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, just even saying that word, we all have probably an idea of what a meek man or a meek woman looks like. Now, when you probably first think of meekness, you're thinking, I'm guessing, the meek, they inherit squat. They get run over. It's the people who are, the, the, the people who actually accomplish things are the strong, the self-sufficient, the overbearing, the aggressive, the ambitious, They're the ones who inherit everything. The meek, they're like doormats. You get walked over if you're a meek person, you get nothing. But yet Jesus says, not so. The blessed one or the one approved of by God is actually the meek one. So I hope we understand the next question is going to be, what does it mean to be meek? Do you know, are you meek? Do you know people who are meek? When you even think about that, what are you actually thinking of? Because that's your definition of meekness. It's the shy one. They never speak up for themselves, that kind of thing. And that's just not, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is actually strength. It speaks to uh, a man or woman who's gentle, 
a man or woman who is ultimately humble. A great way to even think about meekness is someone who has an incredible amount of power, but yet it's completely under control. I'm going to guess that, at least maybe in our culture, most people don't see Jesus as a meek man. They see him as a weak man. Poor Jesus. He got smacked around, bloodied up, nailed to a cross. He's so weak. I was reading through some uh, of the passion narrative uh, in the Matthew's gospel, and this is Matthew 26, 53. I'm asking the question, was Jesus a meek man or a weak man? Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? He's in the garden and there's a fight about to break out. And Jesus is looking at his disciples, what are you guys doing? And the guards are coming after him. And he says this, don't you think, don't you know that I can at this very moment call 12 legions of angels down? That's a lot of angels, by the way. A legion typically would be about 5,000. So we're talking about a ridiculous amount of angels. The story in, uh, in Joshua, there's an angel uh, who actually took out in one night 187,000 people. So if you do the math, 5,000 times 12, and if one angel can take out about 187,000 people, at that point in time in human history, that legion of angels would have taken out the world population like six times over. Don't question my math on that. Just say yes, we agree. <laughs> point being, at that very moment when a fight breaks out in the garden... Jesus is not weak, Jesus is meek, humble, and Jesus also demonstrates an incredible amount of power, but it's under control. Verse uh, Matthew 27, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. First of all, have you ever had someone literally just staring at you, like foaming at the mouth, spitting at you, accusing you of stuff? yelling at you, screaming at you. Maybe you've been on the other side and been doing the foaming and screaming. But when you have someone in your face like that, what is your natural tendency? Defend yourself. Don't say that about me. That's not true. This is what's happening. Jesus is being accused of all of these evil things. Yet when he's being accused, he gave no answer. Then Pilate, the most powerful, influential man of the time, Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. He sat there in amazement that someone had so much gentleness coupled with humility. He could have had, had the power and authority to speak and to say something, but he chose not to. It's a great picture of meekness, not weakness. Power under control. So I wrote it down like this. A, a meek man or woman does not aggressively insist on his or her own rights, but rather trusts in God for outcomes. Do you trust in God for the outcomes of your life? Because life goes left and right, forwards and backwards, and sometimes we're just left utterly confused. Sometimes people will say wrong things against you, slander your name, 
come up against you and you've done nothing to them. That's just the way life goes and that's just the way people are sometimes. So in those moments where life is just chaotic at best and you're utterly confused as to what's going to happen, do you trust God for the outcomes of those situations along with every situation actually? Because a meek person is not the individual, is not the man or woman who insists that their opinion has to be known. A meek man or a meek woman is not the one who manipulates and maneuvers themselves, positions themselves so that they can guarantee the best outcome for themselves. A meek man or woman doesn't do that. They're not manipulative. They're not control freaks. They don't insist on everyone knowing what their opinion is. Ultimately, so their opinion can, they have a higher view of themselves and hopefully everyone else will as well. Jesus says, blessed of God are people who are meek, people who trust in God, depend on God for the outcomes. All of us at some point, I'm guessing, have felt taken advantage of. So in that moment where you feel like someone's just taking advantage of you, a meek person would respond in gentleness, in humility, and they would trust God for the outcomes. In this moment in time in history, Jesus chose not to say anything because he knew God had a greater plan and a greater purpose at that point in time, and he submitted to that. And I wonder in the midst of people coming against you, coming after you, saying stuff about you, if rather than seeking to defend yourself, defend your great name, if you would model meekness and see it in silence, see it in gentleness, see it in humility, trusting God every step of the way, that God, I don't, I'm confused by this right now, but I'm going to trust you for the outcome. And I love the promise at the end of uh, this one, blessed are the meek, they inherit everything. It's not the strong, it's not the powerful, it's not the influential, it's not the wise of the world, it's the meek ones. It's those who are gentle, those who are humble, have themselves under control. I heard once a professor was talking about this and he just said, if you can learn how to just control the world within your own skin, you would be okay. I mean, if we could just learn to tame ourselves and be people under control, meekness. Blessed are you. He goes on, Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. True or false, you are what you eat. We'd have to say true, right? I mean, after that movie came out a couple years ago where the guy hung out at McDonald's for like 30 days, 30 years, what was it? And he gained like 500 pounds and like looked like a Big Mac, right? You are what you eat. I eat at Chipotle a lot, and um, I come home, and Kyle is like, you were at Chipotle again, weren't you? And I was like, no, why would you say that? She's like, I can smell it on you. And it's not even necessarily my clothes. It's like coming out the pores of my skin. And so I, she's like, go take a shower. I was like, all right. You are what you eat. Fill yourself with anger, bitterness, hate, lust, erotica, 
materialism, greed, you'll begin to personify every single one of those attributes. If you fill yourself with those things, and that's a very short list, you'll begin to take on those very characteristics. So the question that Jesus is posing to us ultimately is this. When he says, blessed are, you, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, what do you really hunger for? In your life, what is it that you really hunger and thirst for? Is it for just the righteousness of God or is it just for something else? Like at the end of the day, what is it you really desire most? What is it you really hunger for? And if you're kind of confused as to how to answer that question, what consumes you? What consumes your thoughts? What consumes your time? What consumes your your money? Follow the trail to any one of those things, and you will find at the end of that, this is what I hunger for most. Why? Because I give myself to this. I think about this all the time. I dream about this in my sleep. The question Jesus is posing is, what do you really hunger for? A psalm that's um, really convicting to me. I remember reading this as a little kid. It's just, it's Psalm 42. And it says this, as, and some of you will be familiar with the song. It's old school, but as the deer panteth. Anyone remember that song? All right, like six of you. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? You have a picture here of a man. You know what he's hungry for. You know what he thirsts for. He just wants to be with God. The thing that just jumps out at me and convicts me, so my soul pants for you. What does your soul pant for? I picture he's out in the woods next to a stream and he sees this deer who's just been running, playing, working hard. And he comes to this stream and he's just drinking up this water because he's been playing and working so hard. And he writes this, he pens these words. So my soul, like that deer, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When can I go to meet with him? This is what Jesus is getting at, is what is it that you are actually hungering and thirsting for? And the reality is, unless you're emptied, you can't be filled. Many of us are trying to fill ourselves with a little bit of this over here, i.e. the world, and some of us are trying to fill it to the top, so to speak, with a little bit of God. Until you empty yourself of all the stuff that you've been trying to fill yourself with, you won't experience the fullness of God. What is it you truly hunger for more than anything? I've already asked that, but a follow-up question is, does it actually fill? Like, whatever your thing might be, is it actually filling you? Like, is it working? Is it bringing fulfillment, satisfaction, the joy? Is it bringing the blessedness of God on your life? 
if you, and I'm guessing if it's not God, then it's not going to fill. I'll just be honest to tell you that. So maybe a challenge for all of us would be, I'm going to repent of this over here. I'm going to stop trying to fill myself with this and get to a place of just emptiness and trust that Jesus is serious when he says, blessed are you who hunger, thirst for righteousness because you would be fulfilled. Jesus in uh, John's gospel says it like this. This is Jesus speaking. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Like that's a verse you have to really believe and own. Jesus said, if I came to him, I would not be hungry. Jesus said, if I would come to him and believe in him, who he is, what he's done, what he is doing, I would not thirst again. That's something I'm guessing all of us need to ask God for. That doesn't come naturally. Your prayer very well might be this morning, God, would you give me, by your grace, that hunger, that thirst for you? And would you make everything else that I'm trying to fill myself with so distasteful I would never eat of it or drink of it again. I love the promise. It's a subtle nuance, but Jesus says you'll be filled, not just topped off. Like you will be utterly filled, overflowing, not just like kind of close to the top or like 50%. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for they will be filled. Matthew 5, 7. Look how quickly we're going. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I don't know if, track the progression. There's, there's a method to the madness here in how Jesus is teaching. Progression of attitudes. You've got poor in spirit. You've got mourning over sin. You've got meekness, humility, and gentleness. You've got someone who's hungering for righteousness If you are a person who is doing these four things, exuding these attitudes, you will be merciful. You cannot help but be merciful if you are that person right there. Why? Because you will have understood the great mercy that's been shown to you. And when someone has been shown mercy, the response is to be merciful in return. I don't know about you, but does it feel like we live in an angry world sometimes? Like, have you ever just sat in traffic and just stared at the people next to you? They just look so angry sometimes. And sometimes that's just my reflection in the rear mirror. But sometimes when I look to the car next to me, you see just anger and annoyance. I mean, stand in line next time at the grocery store and just people watch. They get so annoyed and so angry so quickly because someone's not going quick enough in front of them. Like, Why is it that people get so angry and annoyed? And annoyance is a form of anger. So if you're like, I'm not that angry person. I just get annoyed, but I'm not angry. You've got a bigger issue because now you've got like denial too. (laughs) Anger and annoyance. Why is that? Like I see that in myself sometimes. Why are you so angry? Why are you getting so annoyed? Is it really because someone's wronged your rights and you're so important that they're holding you up? It doesn't take much to just observe and probably agree and say, yeah, we live in an angry world. And the question, at least I'm asking, is 
Why? A lot of people are angry, annoyed that they're not getting their rights. And I think what Jesus is pointing to, because people aren't merciful. Can you imagine if people were actually merciful? Do you think there would be issues of anger? No. Why? Because people are merciful. So if you struggle with anger, annoyance, bitterness, rage, the like, the cure for that is Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The cure for that is is mercy. It's meekness actually coupled with mercy. It's probably helpful to define what mercy means so that you can know what it means to be merciful. Mercy is compassion in action. It's one thing to have compassion and look at someone and be like, oh man, I hope someone does something for you. And then you walk away. I mean, it's, if you've lived in Boston long enough and you've had people approach you on the street, some of us get angry and annoyed. Some of us respond with just compassion, like, oh, we empathize with that person. I'm sure they've had a hard story and they're on the streets. That must be tough, but I got to go to Starbucks and get a coffee because I'm getting cold. And they go on their way. There's compassion, but mercy is when you have compassion, but you act it out. Mercy is compassion in action. Mercy is always active. It's never passive. Isn't it kind of interesting how we all love to be shown mercy? Like we all love for people to be kind of gracious to us. We want people to forgive us because we certainly do wrong and we want people to be kind to us. But yet we have the hardest time being merciful, kind, forgiving towards other people. I met a man, I wanted to read you, um, this is a, uh, Kyle and I spent some time in Africa, um, early 2000, and uh, I got to hang out there for about six weeks and uh, met some of the most phenomenal people ever. Uh, people who have nothing in terms of the world standards, you know, um, nothing, but some of the most joyful people we've probably ever met in our entire life. Um, and not only joyful, but most generous people, like people who hadn't eaten for a few days, but when I would come to that town or village, all food was given to me. I mean, it was just, it was insane. And I met this man, um, his, his name was Brother Menajol, and he was actually uh, from India. And uh, he was also uh, on this trip, and he was visiting, he was doing some teaching. And uh, I sat down with uh, Menajol one day, and uh, just as I love to do, uh, ask people questions. And so I just asked him a little bit of his story and a little bit of his background, and um, he shared with me this. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I met a man, Menajol, from India, and he shared his testimony. And it was an incredible story of forgiveness and mercy. While he was on a scooter with his wife and two kids, a drunk driver hit him head-on on purpose in order to rob them. What happened, though, was that his wife and one child were thrown into the water below. The accident took place right at a bridge, and a, a, a driver intentionally, drunk driver, hit them head-on. Uh, one child were thrown into the water below. His wife did not know how to swim, and neither did Menajol. Menajol stood by and watched his wife and his child drown. 
uh, with no one to help. He said that it took a couple of minutes and his wife was trying to hold the baby above water. But after a few minutes of struggling, they both died right in front of him. He uh, shared this story and I was in tears. Shocking, I know. The story went on. Three months later, while in court, Men and Joel gave his testimony in front of the court and the judge. And he looked to the man who had killed his wife and child and told him, I'm a man who follows Jesus Christ, and Jesus has told me to forgive you. So I want you to know that I forgive you for what you have done. He then looked to the judge and said, I have forgiven this man of his crimes against me, and I humbly ask that you, judge, would forgive him as well to show this man mercy. The man was pardoned of his crime and was sent free. It was, um, there's some other things written in there, but I remember when he shared that story with me and I was just asking him lots of questions and... um, He said, Michael, how could I not show mercy in light of the great mercy that God has shown me? And I was like, well, I could think of a few reasons, but it was the most amazing story outside of God's own mercy in my own life uh, over me, a great sinner, and God being merciful to me. It was the most powerful story of one person being merciful to a man who had killed his wife and killed his kid. In view of his mercy towards us, I just want to ask, how could you not be merciful? Like in light of how merciful God has been to you, to me, how could you not be anything but merciful? How could you be anything but gracious and forgiving? Like is there anything that someone could actually do to you or say to you that would be greater than your offense towards God? Don't wrestle with that question because the answer is no. In view of his mercy towards us, how could we not be merciful to all? And I wonder what a witness that would be. Like you talk about people knowing Jesus Christ. Be merciful. Be a merciful person. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. We're going to leave here um, shortly, and you'll go out to your family again. You'll go out to the world uh, you're working in, living in, playing in. And I just wonder, in your life right now, if there's someone who needs to be shown mercy, and if you would be that person to say, I will show mercy. It's that person who is, I don't know, said something, done something. Who in your life right now, as you sit here before God, you could go show them mercy? And if you can't think of a a better reason, they haven't asked you for it, they haven't said they're sorry, they haven't done your list of things that need to be done before you'll be merciful. If you need a reason, just know that God has always been merciful to you. There's never been a point in time in your life where God said, no, not going to cover that one. You've crossed the line. Right now, in your life, 
who could you extend mercy to? And the question is not just so much who, but will you? Not today, or not tomorrow, but today. Write the letter, make the call, go see. You know who it is that God's probably pressing on your heart right now. Matthew 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This attitude right here that Jesus gives with its promise of actually seeing God, uh, there's only one place in Scripture where it talks about that we can see God, and it's right here. This would have flipped. If people were at all confused with these attitudes being backwards, this one was completely backwards because the only way that people were taught or were, were thinking that they could actually have a shot at seeing God was if you were outwardly clean. Meaning, if you are outwardly clean, you got your stuff together, you look good, like outwardly. Inwardly, you could be a mess, but it doesn't matter because you can just dress nicely with some robes and some other things and cover up who you really are. Those are the people who outwardly have their stuff together will actually see God. Jesus flips that worldview on its head, and he just says, listen, it's not the adornment of a really good life. Those people don't see God. They can only see a reflection of themselves in the mirror and they're impressed. The people who see God are the people who are pure in heart. So a hard question is, do you really want to see God? Like in your life, do you really want to see God at work in you, with you, around you? Do you want to have, catch glimpses of the divine in your life? Like, When I consider all of the things, if you just listen to the way people talk, I can't wait to go see that movie. I can't wait to go see that person, or I can't wait to go see that place. We get so excited to see things that just don't even last longer than two hours. We just get so excited, so passionate to, I can't wait to go see that. Is there anyone who would say, I, I want to see God. Like more than anything else, more than any movie, person, place, location, I want to see God. Like I only have two eyes and I'm distracted a lot, but if I could put these two eyes on anything, it would be a glimpse of God. Like do you want to see God in your life, at work, with you, and around you? obstructive view. Have you ever been to like a baseball game or I don't know, a theater, a show that has like obstructed view seating? Many people don't pay, uh, some people sitting in chairs up here, um, we wouldn't pay for the obstructed view. Why? Because we want to have like a clear line of sight so we can take it all in. But yet many of us, myself, many times, have just said, I'm fine with an obstructed view of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. If you guys went to the movies, you paid 10, 11 bucks to go see a movie. If the movie was out of focus, like how long would it take you to get up out of your chair, go tell the manager, hey, can you focus this thing? I paid a whole $11 to see this. It's out of focus. I'm not going to sit here for two hours and watch this out of focus film. Most of us, 
would be that person to get up and say, I'm going to do something about this. But then there's probably other people who would sit in their chair singing, I hope someone else goes and does it for me. How willing would you be to fight for a view of God that's in focus, unobstructed, clear line of sight? God says, Jesus says, if you want to see God, we must pursue purity of heart. And if you're going to pursue purity of heart, one of the things you will have to do and do it soon is identify the things that contaminate. If I were to, um, here's an unopened bottle of water. Brendan, catch. Brendan, it's unopened bottle of water. Go ahead and drink up. It's not, seal's not been broken. Now, if I were to give that bottle of water and say, Brendan, that's contaminated water. I'm just throwing you, just trying to mess with you. Do you think Brendan or any one of us for that matter would actually drink contaminated water knowingly? Like when we moved to Woburn, there was like rumors that Woburn is really messed up and Kyle and I were like freaked out and we're like boiling all our water and three times and like we were so concerned like, oh my goodness, the water, it's contaminated. We can never have water. I guess I'll have to have Diet Pepsi the rest of my life. Like we took it seriously. We got filters and we, you know, all that kind of stuff. But yet, if there's contaminants in my life, better yet, why would I allow contaminants in my life? If I know that something is going to cause contamination in me, cause impurity in me, why on earth would I allow that and let that into my life? In my right mind, why would I allow something that is going to cause impurity, destroy my heart, destroy my view of God, why would I allow that into my life? I've shared this uh, a while, while back, but I know that my story over the years of, of growing in my relationship with God and walking with Him, there have been many times where I just prostituted my heart out. If anger and bitterness wanted to have a home, He was always welcome. If lust wanted to sleep over, she was welcome. If jealousy wanted to stop in, not a problem. Anxiety, fear, worry. If they wanted to camp out in my house, in my home, not a problem. Unforgiveness showed up, she would move right in. I did not do a good job of guarding that which contaminates my heart, my life. I would just let all of these things come in. And every time any one of those things, anger, lust, jealousy, anxiety, worry, fear, shame, guilt, unforgiveness, obstructed view. And then I started to learn, you know, Michael, if you want to have a pure heart, and if you want to see God with clarity, in focus, then would you start guarding your heart, guarding what you allow to come in? How many of us just don't check anything? We just don't guard our minds. We don't guard our hearts. Like, I'm a guy who loves movies. But in all honesty, I stop watching movies. I will go to them on occasion. And this is, don't peg me as some legalist who doesn't believe in movies. I love movies. But I realized 
not long ago, how movies were beginning to impact and shape and form and do things to my mind and heart. I was like, why am I allowing this, this junk in? It started real like, you know, oh, I won't watch that kind of movie because it's got too much sex or too much nudity and that's not good. But I'll watch anything that drops an F-bomb 400 times and kills everyone. That, that doesn't impact me at all. You have to realize that things impact you a lot more than you will ever give credit to. If you care about your own soul, care about your heart, then would you guard it like you are one who cares about your heart? Because Jesus says, the pure in heart, they will see God. Tough question before we move on to the next one, but it's just this. What right now is causing contamination in your life? Identify it, name it, repent of it, and then guard against it. It could be an attitude of anger, bitterness, anxiety, lust. Name it. This is the attitude that's caused contamination. I'm repenting of it. And next time it comes knocking on my door, it's closed. I'm no longer open for shop like I used to be. It could be a behavior. It could be a sexual sin. Like you want to talk about a way to just contaminate your soul Sexual sin will kill you. It could be a behavior of sexual sin or gossip or lying. Man, talk about how many people have destroyed themselves because they filled themselves with just gossip. It could be a relationship, I don't know, with a person, a career, a job. What is it that's causing contamination in your life? If you want to be blessed of God, one who sees God, fight for the purity of your heart like you've never fought before, which might mean you might need to do things a little bit radical. Things that you used to love, say it's not that important. I can't say that my life is worse because I just don't go to movies that much anymore. I can't say that somehow my life has been ruined because I just don't listen to certain types of music because it was just rot in my head, taking me to places that I just, why am I going there? You ever listen to a song, you're like, I'm like angry now. I was happy before this song came on. <laughs> or you listen to a song, and you're like, all of a sudden you get depressed, and you're like, man, be, like three minutes ago, I was mountaintop high, me and John Denver. <laughs> Guard what you let in, because Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Number nine, or number nine, verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. The only reason that any one of us has a chance to be a peacemaker is because God first made peace with you, because God made peace with me. Romans 5.1 says it like this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has made peace with you through Jesus. And to those who have come, confess Jesus as God, are following Jesus as Savior and Lord, you are part of his family, meaning you share in the family likeness. Because God is a peacemaker, one who reconciles, and you're part of his family, you know what that makes you? 
a peacemaker as well. And notice the difference. There's a difference between peacemakers and peacekeepers. Many of us just like to keep the peace, meaning we just don't do anything or say anything for fear of rocking them. I just, just want to keep the peace. No, you don't. You're just a wuss who doesn't want to deal with restoration, reconciliation, making the first move, humbling yourself. Jesus did not say, blessed are those who are peacekeepers. Jesus said, blessed are you who are peacemakers. Um, let me ask, uh, I'm going to uh, go through this, um, uh, move this a little bit quicker. Um, is it harder to make peace with those who are uh, in the world, uh, so to speak, um, or is it harder to make peace with those who are sometimes in the church? Like the peace, just to give you a hint, the peace that Jesus is is calling for is a peace with those we live in the world and a peace with those who are part of God's family. So pursuing peace, which is easier? Pursuing peace with those who are don't know who God is uh, or pursuing peace with those who are actually Christians or people in the church. And peace speaks to wholeness, health, well-being. I don't know what your experience has been, but sometimes it feels a heck of a lot harder to be a peace uh, maker uh, with those inside the church. I've sometimes seen a lot more division, a lot more gossip, a lot more pettiness coming from within the walls of, of God's family than out there. And Jesus is saying, well, that should not be. Why is there a lack of peace? I'll give you a quick answer because there's a lack of peacemakers. One of the things that my wife has done really well over 12 some odd years of being married to me is anytime we've had conflict, which is just like twice, um, <laughs> she's always excelled uh, at making the first move. Like, just put me to shame. She's always excelled at, at just humbling herself and saying, let's make this right. I want to restore. I want to reconcile. And not because she was like, in error or was wrong, it's because she gets being a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper, a peacemaker. And I've affectionately referred to her as she's just excellent at making the first move. And I just wonder if you would make the first move, because there might be someone who's sitting here, uh, and there's someone sitting over there for a reason, because there's division, there's not wholeness, there's not health. Like in the body, in the church, in the body of Christ, there's just no place for division. And the thing that causes division is our pettiness, is our sin, is our lies, our gossip, our jealousies. It should not be. But somebody has to take Jesus seriously and says, I will, I will make peace to make the first move. Um. Matthew 10, let's finish up with this. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you. Listen to this list. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice 
and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The good news is if you live out these beatitudes, you're going to be persecuted, and Jesus actually says this is a good thing, meaning those who mourn, meaning spiritually bankrupt, those who, or those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger, thirst for God's righteousness, those who show mercy, those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers, you will be persecuted. And Jesus says, blessed are you. That, that's actually a good thing. Now, Jesus, the way he's teaching this here, we should rejoice. We should be glad, open arms, accept, bring on this persecution. I am okay with that. Why, let me back up, why would you persecute that person? If this guy, this man, this woman is poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hungering, thirsting for righteousness, showing mercy, pure in heart, why would you persecute that guy? Like, why would you persecute this woman? You would think that that, the world would say, open arms, we love you. You would think. But you have to think beyond that and recognize that the world is in rebellion against God. And if you partner yourself with God, the world is in rebellion against you. Why? Because you look like him. You stand for him. And just so you know, Jesus taught his disciples this. John 15 says this, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. I, I, I'm trying to picture what the disciples, when they first heard that, I'm like, so does that mean we're not going to have many friends? Like, if the world hates you, meaning be ready, keep in mind the world hated me first. And then Paul's instruction to Timothy, he says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you want to go after the B attitudes, live out the Sermon on the Mount, live out Christ-likeness, if you want to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. So there's two reasons Jesus lays out in this beatitude of why you'd be persecuted. The first one is right living, meaning your righteousness, and I don't mean like that you've obtained on your own, your desire to rightly live with God, with people, is a reminder to others of something that they should be doing as well. So right living will cause persecution, and then Jesus will cause persecution, if you stand with him, there will be people who will stand against you. That's why we have a hard time even mentioning Jesus' name. Why? Because the second you drop the J-bomb, there will be other bombs dropped on you. Three responses to persecution. Don't be surprised. Number two, know that you are blessed. Number three, rejoice and be glad. That's what Jesus says. Rejoice and and be glad. And this is not like a surface happiness. If someone's coming after you and be like, what a great day. I am so happy right now. I should, that's not the, that's surface, that's fake. When you are being persecuted, when someone is coming after you, saying, falsely accusing you of, of something, coming after your character, 
Jesus is not talking about just smile and wave it off. At the core of who you are, know that you are blessed and rejoice and be glad that God is at work in your life, enough for someone else to take issue with that. So the question that I want to wrap up with, I guess, is why are you facing persecution right now? Is it because you're actually an offensive person? Which, if we're honest, a lot of the reason we fall under persecution is because we're offensive. I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about you and me. We're rude. We're impatient. We're greedy. We're selfish. The list could go on. So are you being persecuted because it's just your own fault? You live as an offensive person, meaning you offend people in the way you treat them. That's not the persecution Jesus is actually talking about. Or do people persecute you because they see meekness? They see gentleness. They see humility. They see someone rightly trying to live with God and with the world. I guess one other follow-up question, which is hard, is actually, do you face persecution? Because Jesus is presupposing that you do these things, you will be persecuted. But are you actually facing persecution in your life? And I actually believe that there are seasons of rest where God just, there's peace. There's no one who is coming after you, so to speak. But if there is a life where you're never facing persecution, you should examine that and say, why? Is it because actually no one even knows that I stand with God for God, stand with Jesus for Jesus? Is there just no evidence in my life that I'm actually a Christ one, a Christian? This is not the charge like go and find ways for people to persecute you and let them come after you so you can have as a badge of honor, I was persecuted today. This is just to say if you live, as Paul talked about, a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. There's eight specific attitudes that Jesus gave, and he calls us to be these things. We started out, and I just said, attitude is everything because attitude impacts our actions. Our actions reveal the heart, and the heart reveals the man. So before you can ever live out Christ-likeness, you have to check your attitude. That's why Jesus started with attitude. There was eight specific attitudes that Jesus gave. And before you pick and choose, like, oh, I really need to work on that one, or I like that one. No, no, no. It's all, all of them. You can't just pick and choose what you like and what you don't like. And be like, oh, the meekness one, that's for the, them. I'll go after the peacemaker. I'll, it's all of them. And keep in mind, I didn't spend much time uh, at all really looking at the promise. I encourage you to explore that. The kingdom of heaven will be yours. You will be comforted. There's a great inheritance for you. You will be filled. You will see God. You will be identified as a son or daughter of God, and the kingdom of heaven will be yours. These attitudes were all coupled with a promise. Hear that promise. The kingdom of heaven is yours. You will be comforted. There is an inheritance for you. You will be filled. You will see God. You will be identified as a son or a daughter of God. And repeating the first one, Jesus comes back to, 
the kingdom of heaven is yours. It is for you. Before we come to uh, the table and and celebrate communion and and continue just in worship of God, I just want to ask that you would pray. Because I sense, uh, as I've been convicted uh, of these last few weeks of these different attitudes, there might be one in particular that really just hit home, if not a few. And would you just pray and ask God, God, give me the courage to respond to what you're doing in my life right now. It could be the contamination. You've just filled yourself with so much garbage. It could be the peacemaker. Make the first move. The merciful. Be that man or woman who will will show mercy as mercy has been shown to you. Or thirsting and hungering for things that are just not of God. Father God, you know exactly where hearts are here today. God, I just pray that uh, we would respond. God, I pray we just wouldn't settle for hearing another message on this and we're not different. So God, if, if you have, and I know, I just sense you have, if you've been laying heavy on our hearts, places and things that we need to respond to you about. And God, as we would just just have this time of prayer, have this time of worship, please let us respond. Give us courage. Overflow us with your grace. Create a desire in us that we would thirst and hunger for things of you. God, that we would chase hard after purity, a complete purity of who we are. God, that we would make peace, that we would be merciful.